Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm Sarah Whitmire and today I'm co-hosting with Perry Metz. We're talking about the recent midterm election results, what's happening with District 62 and more. You can follow today's conversation on Twitter at Noon Edition or send us questions using the email news at indianapublicmedia.org. If you want to join us on air, you can call 812 812- We have three guests today joining us via Zoom. John Suantes is the public affairs television host for Indiana Lawmakers, and he's also a news analyst for our partners at WFYI Public Media. We also have Andy Downs. He's the former director of the Mike Downs Center for Indiana Politics at Purdue University Fort Wayne. And then Marjorie Hershey, a frequent guest here on the program, a professor of political science at IU and the publisher of two books of research and a number of political articles in different journals. So thank you all for joining us today. You're welcome. A lot of ground to cover since the midterm election last week. I just want to pose the question to all of you about whether anything really surprised you. And Marjorie, you want to you want to start? Oh, yeah, uh, quite a lot, actually. Uh, let me mention three things in particular. First, Donald Trump is finally past his peak. Um, a lot of us have been reluctant to say that because we had expected it to happen so many times before and it didn't when he disrespected John McCain and a war hero's father and when he talked on tape about violating women and after the January 6th insurrection and so many other times when he did something egregious and people were shocked and a few days later his base convinced Republican leaders to come back and pledge loyalty to him. But I think that the election showed there's evidence that it's real this time. Lots of Republican leaders are saying out loud that Trump caused the party a Senate majority last week by pushing several Senate candidates who were not ready for prime time and who lost races that the Republicans should have won, and they're right about that. Republicans did better without Trump on the ballot this year than they did with him in 2020. In about three quarters of U.S. House districts, Republican candidates got a higher percentage of the vote this year than Trump did in those districts in 2020. So that means the Republicans have an interesting problem for 2024. Trump is clearly a drag on the Republican Party, but he has so much strength among local and state Republican activists that he could still get nominated in Republican primaries. He has never, I think this is something we often forget, never been able to win a majority of the popular vote or get over 50% in public approval. But his base is a plurality of the Republican vote, and that base is very fervent. So the Republicans really can't win nationwide with Trump, but their base is wedded to him. But Part of that base could well say in 2024, we love Trump, we'll support him till the day we die, but we need a Trumpy candidate who will win for Republicans. Couple more things briefly. Second, the abortion issue is a bigger deal than many people thought. The assumption was that abortion rights has clear majority support, but that the impact of the Supreme Court's decision would fade by the time of the election. And it didn't, although that was true only in some states, including those where a pro-choice majority worried that their state legislature would end abortion rights. 
And finally, we learned again that we are very polarized in a partisan and an issue-based sense. The blue states remain blue. Some of them got bluer, Michigan and Pennsylvania, while the red states often got redder. Florida is a good example, in part due to gerrymandering of legislative districts. So it was a pretty rich election in terms of what it showed us about current politics. A lot there to follow up on. John, uh, how about you? Did you want to add anything? Well, uh, I think the professor is certainly uh, in keeping with her tradition and her excellence uh, summed it up pretty well. I guess there weren't many surprises. Certainly the red wave did not uh, materialize nationally that, that a lot of the pundits and pollsters had talked about. However, uh, some states, and, and again, Margie just mentioned Florida, seem to have uh, be awash in a bit of a red tide for any number of, of reasons. New York also uh, surprisingly strong showing among a lot of uh, Republicans at, at the congressional level uh, and uh, dislodged some people who, by all accounts, uh, you know, as recently as a month or so ago, seemed to be a lock on reelection. And Indiana uh, seems to have uh, uh, been pretty predictable, um, uh, maybe even more red and more reliably Republican than I than I would have thought. Uh, we could delve into some of the statewide races, which I'm sure we will. And I, uh, but it appeared that many many Hoosiers uh, went into the polling place or when they were filling out their absentee ballots. Uh, felt the Republican strings pulling and uh, regardless of controversy surrounding some candidates, uh, cash their votes accordingly. So uh, the red wave didn't materialize, but in low-lying low areas such as maybe parts of New York, Florida, and I guess we'll throw Indiana into that uh, mix, uh, it certainly seemed uh, uh, fairly red, though. And Andy, do you echo what the other panelists have said? I think they both have raised very good points. There's sort of this nationalization of elections, and we look at control of Congress, and a lot of people stop there. Fortunately, there are folks like Marjorie and John in this show that give us the opportunity to look at things in a little more detail, and you start to find those nuances. And, and from uh, whether it's Indiana, as, as John just brought up a moment ago, or Florida, other places that were brought up earlier, we do know that there are states that are not quote unquote, behaving the way the national election is characterized. Indiana, certainly with the supermajority going to Republicans again, is not in that uh, pink ripple or whatever people are calling it these days sort of category. Uh, and that's important to remember because that means state and local elections do matter and they matter a lot. And one other thing that I would mention is that just because a candidate has some uh, bad attention coming their way, if the opponent does not have the resources to make sure everyone knows about that, it doesn't mean the death knell. So if we think about somebody like Diego Morales uh, and what can only be characterized as some bad press uh, coming his way, if you have a candidate like that, that candidate can still win if the opposition does not have the resources to make sure that voters are aware of that. Margie, I'd like to go back to your comment about Donald Trump. Uh, you said that he had peaked. I wonder what you think might happen if Trump were to refashion himself in his original run for the presidency. Stop talking about the lost election and focus on accomplishments of his term. Would he be able to broaden that base, win the Republican nomination, and be a, a, a pretty competitive candidate for president? I suspect you're right, Perry, that he would. The trouble is, I don't think he's capable of it. Um, I think that Trump is, above all, totally dedicated to proving that he has never lost ever in anything whatsoever, um, even the tiniest things he feels he has to win. So uh, I think he's his own worst enemy in that regard. I don't think he can ever give up the notion that he claims he really won in 2020. Andy, I also yeah, I wanted to... That seems just like a total impossibility as far... Uh, I mean, I just don't see it in his makeup or his constitution, a willingness to, even for a short period of time, uh, listen to advisors who might tell him to dial it back. I mean, he, he tried, we saw with the announcement from Mar-a-Lago of his presidential bid uh, this week, but even then he couldn't help himself. But 
make some of the snide comments about uh, uh, Joe Biden and his family and, and other things. So it, I just don't think it's in his makeup. Andy, you also uh, talked about Diego Morales, who was uh, uh, the subject of a number of stories about raising questions about his previous employment uh, in the Secretary of State's office and his military record. I, I'm interested in that because I was surprised when I went to vote. I was specifically instructed by the poll worker how I could vote a straight party ticket. Didn't mention which party, but they wanted to be sure I knew how to do that, which I'd never been told before. I, I, it, it surprised me. And it seemed that a great many people in Indiana did vote a straight party ticket. Do you think that was a factor in, what ha- in his election? We do know that straight party voting helps weaker candidates. There's no doubt about that. And when you look at midterm ballots in Indiana, you're looking at an incredibly long ballot. And so in the 20 some years I've been around election administration, I can tell you I know of other precinct workers who've instructed voters how to cast a straight party vote, not because they're pushing one party or the other, but because it's a faster way to vote Mm -hmm. and it moves the line faster. So it's a practical issue. Uh, But I think there's no doubt that the straight the straight party vote is something that benefits weaker candidates within within uh, both parties. When you look statewide, Morales uh, won all, but I think it was three counties. The other statewide candidates won, or excuse me, all but five uh, counties. The others won all but three counties. So he clearly underperformed in comparison to, say, Tara Klutz. Uh, but in the end, still a really, really strong showing for for a candidate people consider to be pretty flawed. And, you know, Perry, uh, Indiana is something that seems of an outlier in terms of its uh, seeming tolerance or support in in the case that you experienced of uh, straight ticket voting, I think it's one of maybe six states now that still even uh, provide that option. And that's down, I think it's dropped by probably 50% uh, in a decade or so. Um, so I think there will be certainly efforts. Uh, and you know, it, it always, you know, this has helped in some cases, Republicans uh, mm-hmm. like Diego Morales, and it's helped some Democrats uh, in where weaker candidates who are perceived as weaker have have been bullied by straight party voting. So it will undoubtedly be uh, an issue once again in the General Assembly, as it has been uh, in the past, uh, whether it uh, we remain one of the six states or whether we drop from that list, I guess, is anyone's guess. Andy, I know you wanted to chime in, too. Yeah, John, John ended up mentioning it there at the end. It's something that has come up in legislative sessions before. I'm fairly certain it will come up again. Uh, but in the end, it's awfully hard to change the rules when you're the benefactors of the rules. And, and so we don't see massive shifts in election law in Indiana uh, too frequently. There may be something here because this is an issue that does kind of get a little bit of bipartisan support or more accurately, bipartisan hatred. Uh, Because when you start looking at those local races, there are some township board folks and town council members who think, thank goodness they're straight party voting because I won for that reason. Mm -hmm. So in in Indiana now, I think it's been at least 10 years since Democrats have won a statewide office. So I'm just curious your perspective of if Indiana really has just become a one-party state. Do you want to start with that, Andy? Sure. If you went back in time, it was pretty easy to know what the model was that worked in Indiana. You looked at Evan Bayh or Frank O'Bannon. Some people would say John Gregg and Joe Donnelly met that mold as well, sort of blue dog-ish uh, moderate individuals. That was a that was a model that worked, and it worked really well. But we also know that it does not work right now. Evan Bayh was defeated. John Gregg was defeated. Joe Kernan was defeated. We're really looking for in the in the Democratic circles. We're looking for what the right model is today. What I think will hold back knowing the new model, though, is that. An awful lot of money got invested in this state in people like John Gregg and Evan Bayh, who then ended up losing by, and Joe Donnelly, who ended up losing by pretty wide margins. Uh, A lot of political investors are going to say, why should I dump a bunch of money into a state uh, on a model that is either unproven or that we now have evidence says doesn't work? So it will be hard for Democrats to say, here is the person who can win statewide and then actually get the resources to back that up. 
Some people would say if you want some evidence of that, just look to the Secretary of State's race. Uh, the Democrats fielded three pretty good candidates for the offices being sought. Destiny Wells clearly uh, had a good resume for this and was running against a, a candidate who was not as strong as the others, yet was really not able to raise much money to deliver a message that could help prove or disprove whether she was maybe the new model. See, that's really quite a conundrum, though, because they're not raising the money because they're not winning the offices. But then absolutely, <laughs> yeah, um, Marjorie, I I think you want to chime in. I did. Uh, let me amplify a bit on on Andy's very good point. Um, this is not at all unusual. Most states are one party dominant now, and most states used to be one party dominant quite a while ago. In the mid-1900s, most states were either predominantly Republican or predominantly Democratic. The only time when we've had a lot of competitive states in our recent memory has been the time in the mid to late 1900s when the two parties were resorting themselves in terms of the, the um, components that they had of various social demographic groups. In particular, the movement of white conservative Southerners from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party, that upended things and made the two parties more competitive within various states than had been the case for a long time. But we're back to the old pattern where um, almost probably about three quarters of the states are no longer competitive by party. They are one party or the other. So today, can I, can I weigh in on that uh, as well? I, because please. I think that is it's a, a very important uh, uh, topic about one-party control here. And, and I'm a believer, and I'm and I'm losing this belief uh, with time, and I'm witnessing the developing news uh, in real time. But I'm still a believer in the pendulum of history, or sort of the, the cyclical nature of politics uh, in Indiana. And if you go back and you look, traditionally we sort of had. We test the theory of Hoosier hospitality. Hoosiers generally like their incumbents for about two decades, and then they were ready to to show them the door, uh, whether they had just grown weary or ready for a, a change. Uh, but you looked at I'm talking about primarily the governor's office uh, when you had, you know, Bowen and, and, and Whitcomb and Orr, and then you had, you know, a flurry of Democrats uh, with Bai and and O'Bannon and Kernan filling out a, a term and then back to Republicans. One would think that it were due for another uh, course correction, but I, the reason I think the pendulum may be a bit broken here, and, 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 and my colleagues have already alluded to this, is that the voters and, the, uh, and their party affiliations seem to have changed. The strength of the Democratic Party, for instance, in the General Assembly in Indiana was Southern uh, Democrats back in the days of the John Gregg when Speaker or Mike Phillips from Boonville, uh, and these were sort of the the, the traditional uh, Democrats who were fairly conservative socially, uh, but were the the backbone in many ways of the Democratic Party, uh, certainly as it was represented in the Indiana House and Senate. That seems to have changed dramatically. Those voters and their affiliations, whether that can come back, I don't know. Let's also give credit to the skill with which uh, Republicans drew the maps uh, this time. They, it was masterful. Uh, they And you could see it in a few races, such as the 5th Congressional District, which uh, suburban Indianapolis, which had been had become fairly competitive uh, back when Susan Brooks, uh, uh, who held the seat until uh, uh, two cycles ago, or, or one cycle uh, before this one, before Victoria Sparts uh, uh, replaced her, uh, I mean, that had been a fairly close race uh, with the old maps. I think it was four points or so. Now it's back up to 25 uh, because of the, the redrawing of the maps. And you can see different parts of the state that probably cost uh, Terry Austin, a uh, longtime Democrat from Anderson, uh, and in fact, the caucus leader in the House uh, Democratic Caucus, uh, her seat, uh, because it was effectively, a, it was a rematch of two years ago with new boundaries. And she went from victory to defeat. So. Uh, between the, the changing voter uh, allegiances, uh, between uh, because of the power of, of map drawing in Indiana, uh, I'm willing to concede that the pendulum may be not uh, as well oiled as it used to be. 
You're listening to <laughs> Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about the midterm election and then what's to come as we look ahead to next year. You can share your comments or questions. You can tweet us at news, email us at news at indianapublicmedia.org or join us on air, 812-855-0811. Let's turn for a minute to Monroe County. Uh, the District 62 race in the uh, Indiana House has uh, uh, suddenly become very close. And it brings to mind a question about uh, reporting of results. I think many people believe that with electronic voting, uh, you should be able to press a button, the computer spits out the results, and you report them. And yet, uh, a couple days later, we had a slew of ballots uh, reported that seem to have been found. How, how does that happen, and how can we explain the, the process of counting votes? Well, let me start. Um, for one thing, I think, if anything, it's remarkable that we get the vote counts as quickly and as clearly as we do, given the fact that there are millions of precincts in the United States and they're all um, staffed by a lot of folks who are underpaid, overworked, um, threatened on all sides recently, and they have to go through a whole lot of procedures that state legislatures have put on them. In Indiana, for example, the methods of both sending out the votes and counting the votes have been changed numerous times by the state legislature, that makes it more complicated. And the more complicated it makes things, um, the less likely we are to be able to have the votes counted quickly and easily. Um, I, I think people underestimate the extent to which it really is terribly difficult to get these counts taken care of. And um, although I don't think anybody is pleased or proud of the fact that some votes have been found it's just a lot simpler to explain these things by simple human error than it is by some massive conspiracy that somehow always is against the person who, who is claiming it. Andy, did you want to add something? Yeah, if you, if you go, but you don't have to go back that far. I mean, if you go back into the 1980s, people were still using uh, punch cards and, and uh, paper ballots. They were using the old automated voting machines with the big levers in them. Uh, and there was a desire to move away from those, in part because it took so long for votes to be counted. That's because the absentee ballots were delivered to precincts. They were counted in precincts from pieces of paper. Those then got delivered down to the central voting areas, counting area. Things had to get added up. I mean, all of these things ended up taking time. And so when you looked at issues of, you know, of military ballots, et cetera, coming in after the election, so to speak, no one really noticed because it was just we were waiting for the results anyway. But there was a pretty big push for results to come out faster and faster and faster. And that meant more reliance on electronic voting machines and electronic tabulation. But what that did was make people aware of the rest of the processing. Uh, how long does it take to take care of provisional ballots? We actually have a deadline today for provisional ballots to be resolved. Uh, somebody could say those are ballots that are quote unquote found. In actuality, they're not found. They were already there. We're just going to find out about them uh, in some communities today. So that certainly uh, explains part of the problem as well. And then finally, I'd point out that so many elections are wide margins that nobody really cared about ballots that were showing up late or that were being dealt with after election day, a couple of days after election day. It's only in those close races that people begin to pay attention. Uh, and that, of course, is interesting when you have a close race. If you don't have close races, people have a tendency to not notice those things. What are the Let Indiana just... rules for a, a recount, uh, both automatic and requested? There are no automatic recounts in Indiana. You have to actually request them, and they can be requested either by the candidate or by the chair of the political party in question. Uh, but there are no automatic recounts in Indiana. Perry, let me just mention that of the various things that we value in a democracy, speed is probably a bit <laughs> down to this. Um, 
accuracy is right at the top of that list and sometimes speed and accuracy are opposed to one another i think that we've come to value speed just because that's a value that we find in the media that we want to know right away as soon as we possibly can and that would be great if it turns out to be accurate but even the notion that the longer it takes the more likely there is to be an opportunity for fraud is inaccurate. You can certainly have fraud very quickly. Um, so I think it probably would be best for us just to take a deep breath and say, what we do with votes is we count them. And sometimes it takes a while. You, you know, and for those who, who view electronic voting as a panacea uh, and, and sort of this, the believers in the notion that you suggested in your question, Perry, that this is digital voting. It should be instantaneous, just as when I cast my vote for Dancing with the Stars or or America's Got Talent, whatever. You can tell I those aren't shows I watch regularly, but I guess you can weigh in with your instant votes in, in those regards. Well, uh, first of all, uh, that has created problems. Uh, it is the, the emergence of digital voting that has given rise in many cases to the conspiracy theorists who think that it's all been hacked and programmed. And that's why you've seen a push uh, in many sectors, including uh, the, the outgoing Secretary of State, Republican here in Indiana, and, and, and other elected officials around the country who've tried to uh, and have had federal backing and funding in many cases to do this, to implement uh, voting mechanisms or machinery that has a paper trail. So it may be, appear to the, the voter to be, quote unquote, electronic 21st century, but there is an auditable paper trail mm. uh, as a backup. So, I mean, I think we should be careful that, and when we look at it across the country, certainly this is a case, electronic voting isn't always really electronic voting. You may punch some buttons, but then take your piece of paper over and put it in a scanner. Uh, it, it's, there's, that's part of the issue is we have as many ways of, of casting ballots across the country as, well, not as many well, in many cases, probably every state, if not divisions within states, have their own machinery and mechanisms. So it's it's hard to say this is the problem or that's the problem when you're looking at assigning blame to uh, slow vote counts. Andy, I know you want to add something. And then I, I have a couple questions about the Senate race. Sure. John brought up the idea of voter verified paper audit trails. That's the term a lot of people will use. And that is, for example, folks who are voting on microvote machines this year, they may have actually seen the VVPAT. They actually saw the tape go up that told them who they voted for. And if it was correct, then they cast that vote. That provides a way to deal with recounts. That's what a lot of people think. Oh, now a recount will be more accurate because we can compare a machine count to the actual pieces of paper. It's important for folks to remember that that piece of paper is available for audits at any time. It doesn't have to be for a recount. In fact, a good election administration includes audits along the way. In most simple form, did the number of votes match the number of signatures that were re that were found in poll books? When you get more sophisticated uh, forms of audit, you theoretically not only identify places where there are areas for improvement, but more importantly, help to build confidence in the systems that are used. And that is obviously very important right now. Andy, I, I'm going to pose this next question to you because the U.S. Senate race here, it, I thought it was really interesting. The mayor of Hammond was running against incumbent Todd Young. And at the end of election night, I know he said something like he he regretted the last 14 months and he felt like that was just totally, totally wasted um, because it ended up not actually being that, that close of a race. So I, I'm just curious about, well, that race and then also the effect that if we can say his poor showing had on these other races. Well, this gets to the issue of uh, the the idea of coattails, and and if uh, McDermott had no coattails, then nobody else below the ballot was going to be drug along on those coattails. And there's certainly evidence that says coattails are real. Uh, but there were also reasons to think that some of the other candidates could have done well even without the coattails. And obviously, I've mentioned this numerous times, but I have to again, Secretary of State's race was one of those races. We can probably all look to several House or Senate races within our areas that, that would fall into that same category. Uh, candidates who run for office when it's over 
there is an emotional uh, letdown, whether you win or lose. You know, if you've won, there's sort of the, you know, you, you, you have to let that, the adrenaline wear off for a little while. You have to think about what it is you just did. And then you, you have to realize, oh, no, I just won. I guess I better be ready to govern now. And if you lost, you can't help but ask, why did I just spend the last, in some cases, 24 months running for office? And when you lose to the kind of, uh, in the kind of margin that he did, that question becomes a lot easier to ask uh, than if you sort of lost a close race. Uh, but elections are zero-sum games. So anytime you don't win, you've lost, and you can easily say, why did I just waste the last X number of months of my life? And part of the answer is in order for us to have a thriving and vibrant democracy. So you didn't waste it. You actually gave everybody someone to look to. You maybe raised some issues that people uh, hadn't been thinking about, and those are all good things. Uh, but in the end, unfortunately, they they are zero sum games. You win or you lose. We've heard a lot since the election about uh, who won in the larger sense. Uh, Democrats are saying we won because there was no red wave, uh, and we we won more seats than is is typical in a midterm election of a first-term president. And Republicans are saying, we won because uh, we took the majority of the votes cast in the United States for the House of Representatives, we won back the House, and we'll change the direction of the country. To what extent is, is victory in the eye of the beholder, and how can we really judge in such a close race uh, who, who won in the larger sense? I think that's a wonderful question, Perry, um, and it's one that I spend a lot of time on on my research in um, in the fact that election results obviously do have uh, one single result, and that's who which candidate won. But we very often find that an explanation is developed that's widely accepted after the election as to why that particular answer may have been a bit different from what we expected. So that the losing candidate might say, yeah, but I did a lot better than I was expected to. Or the winning candidate might say, yeah, I won and it's because of this particular group that I was able to get over the top. So if anything, the explanations that are accepted by the media, by party leaders, by candidates, by political activists, have more of an influence on what people learn from an election than do the election results themselves. And um, I think there's good reason for that. When a party says, we won the House of Representatives, and you know in context that um, the, the party that, that had that position in the past almost uniformly did better than that party did, then there is a basis for saying, well, yeah, you did win, but uh, you probably didn't win nearly as well as you should have. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about the midterm election and more. If you want to join the conversation, you can tweet us at Noon Edition or call in at 812-855-0811. Andy, I think I stepped on your toes and you had something to say. Yeah, that's okay. Those breaks are important. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to, to go back to what Marjorie was talking about. Uh, there are political campaign workers, and for that matter, candidates all across the country who have careers built on beating the spread. You know, if you're a campaign worker, you've started out in, as a field person or, or something else, you've made your way up to campaign manager, and suddenly you're able to say when you're in those job interviews, well, no, none of my candidates have won, but I've always beaten the spread. And that then makes you more valuable and able to compete for those positions where the spread is narrower and narrower. In other words, the tighter, uh, more exciting races. Uh, so certainly there are a lot of people who talk about how they beat the spread. And then one thing I wanna say, and, and um, I hate saying this as a, a political scientist and as somebody who's been asked this sort of question numerous times, Political scientists are much better at explaining afterwards than predicting beforehand what's going to happen. And that's part of what we see. Now, fortunately, there are people like Marjorie who spend an entire career helping us understand what happened in an election. We can then use that to guess what will happen in future elections. But in the end, we are much more in the business of explaining than in predicting. 
I thought you know, that was the description of economists. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm fascinated by the whole notion of, of ex- the expectation game. And you're exactly right. That is how people have built careers about saying, you know, I, I lost, but boy, we put up a great showing and we beat anybody else who had ever been a nominee in that given jurisdiction. But I mean, it, it starts to sound like sports gaming where you can, you know, in the middle of a game, well, that's uh, who's the next fumble, who's the next mm-hmm. this. I pretty soon will maybe see uh, over under, although I guess since <laughs> theoretically everything adds up to 100%, we probably won't have an over under. But one other observation about winners and losers, and this is why I guess pundits exist, is to speculate and, and think and play whatever sort of mental chess game is out there. So if you look at the House, uh, well, the Senate, let's say that was a win, U.S. Senate for for Democrats, clearly. House, uh, the expectation was they they would have lost perhaps 20 seats, 30 seats. At one point, uh, there was an, a prediction, uh, uh, House Republican leadership of 60. Didn't happen. So I guess you could say that's a win. But on the other hand, you have already uh, Republicans who now will be in the majority in the House uh, talking about the many, many investigations and oversight committee hearings that they will be holding uh, on all aspects of uh, supposed misdeeds on the part of uh, both both political and personal on the part of uh, the Biden administration and family members. Uh, but even there, you could say that's a loss. But but wait, but wait, dear punditry, we could say, does that then make Republicans look as if they're not doing the, the bidding of, of voters who sent them there to deal with crime and and uh, inflation and national security? And if they're perceived as is again, litigating past grievances, uh, that then becomes almost a, a showcase in which Democrats can argue the failed experiment of leadership uh, over the next two years of Republicans in the House. So so when, then again, you could play an, another layer of chess and say, well, maybe it's a, actually a good thing. And that you get kind of in a rabbit hole of what's good or bad. I guess uh, uh, I, that's a long-winded way of saying it's a little of both. Well, let's pursue that a minute. Uh, I think there's been a lot of agreement that the House Republicans are going to start a number of investigations. Aside from that, what do you see as the legislative goals? What will they be trying to pass? I don't think, well, other than undoing uh, funding for the IRS, ostensibly, which was put in place to uh, uh, collect money from tax cheats, chronic tax cheats, and therefore pay for some of the other initiatives that the uh, the Biden administration had pursued. I mean, that's been uh, apparently uh, cited as job one. But aside, but other than that, I'm not sure there really is an agenda. It's uh, other than dismantling, undercutting, and investigating. Uh, to put it in short terms, I think that the Republicans are well aware that anything they pass is going to be symbolic because first they don't have control of the Senate, and second. President Biden can veto anything that, even if Congress were to pass anything, which is unlikely, um, that does get past the House. Um, but investigations should be enough for them. That's what they're particularly interested in. And uh, let me go back at least briefly to the point about explanations for election results. There's a wonderful story about that that comes from John Margolis, who was a political reporter for the Chicago Tribune for a long time. And he said he switched to the sports beat finally because he had never seen a headline that said, Cubs beat the Cardinals three to two, Cardinals denied it. Um, <laughs> and in in fact, you know, we we saw that in very practical terms in 2020. Um, one of the explanations that President Trump gave for his loss, which he could not accept, was that it did not exist, that there was another explanation, that there was so-called voter fraud. Um, so it's it's just um, it, it's a question of who gets their explanations accepted by most people, by most commentators, by most political um, activists and and leaders, and um, that's something that we're still studying as to what makes an explanation more likely to be easily accepted than another. I think, I think John did a nice job of, of auditioning to be the press person for both parties, both majorities and minorities in both chambers, explaining how all of them can claim victory uh, <laughs> in what happened here. Um, 
unfortunately, he also, along with Marjorie, helped to explain why we can probably expect next to nothing to get done. I mean, gridlock is the norm at this point, unlike a city council that has to get stuff done. Congress doesn't see that many things they, quote, have to get done. So we'll see a lot of uh, gridlock. And let's remember that even within the caucuses within the chambers, they didn't necessarily agree uh, on what they should be trying to accomplish. So even if they were um, had a larger majority than they do, they wouldn't necessarily be able to push it because it's not something the entire caucus agreed to. Uh, I think we're looking at probably both parties talking about how the fact that they either are in the minority or don't have enough of a majority to get things done. They're going to use that as the reason for why you need to vote for them in the upcoming election in 2024. Yeah, well, too- would, yeah. go ahead. I would just point out that the uh, and that works at, uh, is true, I think, at the federal level in Congress and at the legislature, because you have a supermajority here in the House and Senate, for instance, at the state house. And I have argued that the, the best if you want to get your popcorn, if you're a political junkie and watch and watching the palace intrigue unfold, uh, get your popcorn and and you know get get a good seat because the infighting within the so-called supermajorities these these are not monolithic. Uh, looked at look at abortion and how Indiana uh, some of the very uh, heated debates within among Republicans uh, during the special session this past summer on that issue, and I think we'll see the same thing. Uh, not only unfold on other issues here in the state, but certainly there will be Republicans in the House majority on Capitol Hill who say, why are you going down this investigative path? This is you're just playing right into, you know, into the into the uh, the briar patch. If you, I mean, this is what they want you to do and you're going to it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the risk we run and if, if you really want to talk about democracy is uh, we talk about it uh, as if it's you know who's up who's down you know how to you know deduce this and discern that is that when people tune out and decide it doesn't matter or it's it's not a sport a participation sport anymore then we do have i think the growing threats to democracy not only among voters but we do have sort of a disengagement on the part of would-be candidates let's not forget that sadly in the just completed elections here in the legislative uh, arena in Indiana, uh, we had, I think, uh, 40% of the 125 races across both the House and Senate were uncontested. Um, I think uh, uh, that's, how can you have an election by definition when, when only one candidate is on the ballot, I guess is sort of the, the uh, rhetorical question. I want to throw on to what John just said there and and point out to folks that I think in five of the cases uh, where there was a quote unquote contested election, the second candidate was either a libertarian or an independent. So that 40 percent that John is talking about is is accurate. But if you dig a little deeper, the realistic chance of the other candidate winning uh was close to uncontested when you take into consideration that the other candidate was libertarian or independent in it and i think it was five of the cases in fact that's true nationally um on average in state legislative contests about 40 percent are contested only by one of the major parties which is really a serious problem but um to go back to what john was mentioning earlier about divisions within the parties it's the republicans who are really going to have to pay attention to this this upcoming legislative session because of the fact that although they don't publicize who are their members which i think is interesting the House Freedom Caucus, which is the Trumpiest of the House Republicans, seems to have about 30 or 31 members. That's bigger than the Republican majority in the House is going to be. And that means that the Freedom Caucus uh, is going to be able to hold the Republican leadership hostage on anything that it chooses to do. And in fact, may well, um, in the most immediate sense, decide to do so on the vote for the speakership as soon as the House convenes in January. Um, I would bet it's almost a certainty that the Freedom Caucus's 31 members will say, yeah, you won the majority of the Republicans' votes for speaker, but when you have to be elected by the whole House, we won't vote for you unless you do A, B, and C. 
And uh, those will undoubtedly include some things that many Republicans wish weren't going to be brought up. We only have about. And if you want an argument to illustrate that uh, Republican office holders are not in lockstep, here's a, a classic example: would be the U.S. Senate uh, representation from the state of Indiana. They're both Republicans, uh, but increasingly they seem to uh, be diametrically opposite on many issues. The test vote this past week on guaranteeing uh, same-sex uh, marriage uh, equality. Uh, they split on that, uh, famously split on a bill that, uh, you know, to shore up uh, chip manufacturing, uh, the CHIP Act, if you will, uh, in in the country. That was uh, Todd Young uh, co-authored that bill with Chuck Schumer, which, of course, would get him put uh, on any number of dark, bar- dark boards in some conservative circles just by even, you know, fraternizing with the enemy in that fashion. Uh, so, I mean, there's a classic example where you look at two Republicans, both who bear the title U.S. Senator, IND, uh, you know, behind their names, and but increasingly seem to be rather uh, traveling different paths. We only have about 10 minutes left. But if you can still get your call in at 812-855-0811. I want to look ahead just a little bit to 2024. Uh, I know there's still a lot of ground we could cover co- talking about the midterms, but I think the governor's race is increasingly going to be super interesting in Indiana, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that. You know, just as we were just talking about the Senate candidate, so Braun might not run for re-election. Maybe he will seek the governorship. Maybe Hollingsworth, we know, didn't run for re-election in the 9th District. I've also heard on the Democratic side, maybe Jennifer McCormick, uh, maybe a Joe Donnelly. So um, let's see here. John, what do you think about the governor's race in 2024? Wow. You know, I, one thing I've learned in the past few cycles, my prediction skills are, are horrible, uh, uh, even worse in politics and in, in any sports uh, predictions. So I should probably refrain from saying uh, who I think will ultimately be the nominees of the two parties. You've touched on, Sarah, on some of the, the names that are, are likely to come uh, to the forefront uh, for obvious reasons. When Trey Hollingsworth decides not to uh, run again for reelection, another term in the House, that certainly uh, spark speculation. Uh, uh, and you mentioned Mike Braun, uh, you know, Mitch Daniels uh, is will no longer at the end of this calendar year be a president of Purdue University. Uh, there's a lot of speculation about what would Mitch Daniels want to do. Uh, you know, interestingly, these are a lot of people who are sort of, I don't want to say usual suspects, but they, they're already in the mix. Uh, the, the reason I think uh, prognostication is difficult, especially in this political climate, is the the outsider that you didn't you don't see coming, the Donald Trump, if you will, in, in back in 2016. So uh, while I think the names you, you put on the table uh, are certainly solid picks, uh, be wary of, of the dark horse. We are not even it's not we're not talking about may not even be thinking about may not even know about at this point. Margie. I think Andy would be the be the best person to go next well thank you marjorie whenever you start hearing names especially people say like braun for example uh keep in mind that if he does not seek uh, re-election to the senate that then creates an open senate seat so some of the folks who might be thinking about governor could suddenly be thinking about senate certainly the member of the house from my way uh, jim banks might be placed in the category of somebody who'd seek the senate seat but maybe not the the gubernatorial seat. Uh, I do find these conversations interesting. The names you mentioned come up, of course. Todd Rokita's name comes up, obviously. Uh, But there are two names that quite often don't make the list. And I find that interesting. One of them is Eric Doden, who has flat out said he's running and has already raised a couple of million dollars. The other one, and, and this is the one that I think is more interesting, is Lieutenant Governor Suzanne Crouch. Uh, normally, that's the progression. You're lieutenant governor, and then you are the gubernatorial nomination after the term limits. But her, her name often gets less, left off the list. It is no doubt going to be pretty uh, wide open, and we'll see how it plays out. I think a lot of this will shake out during the pre-declaration of your actual candidacy. Uh, but any one of the names mentioned so far, I think, could be legitimately gubernatorial or Senate candidates. I think one of the most important questions, um, at at least as much as the governorship, is the balance in the state legislature. 
whenever you have one party that has a supermajority, um, its ability to gerrymander is very high. And of course, we won't see this again until 2031 after the next uh, that next census. But it's been absolutely key to Republican success to be able to dominate the state legislature to the extent that it has. We, we know that political scientists typically view the, quote, normal vote, unquote, the, the what would be expected as a Republican versus Democratic vote in Indiana to be the vote for statewide offices, which tends to be about 57, 58 percent Republican. The legislature is close to 80 percent Republican, and that's due to gerrymandering, and that produces supermajorities that can do essentially whatever they want. They can change the voting laws. They can affect abortion. They can do lots of things. So I would hope that there would be a lot of focus on restoring democratic, small democratic rules, small D democratic rules to um, state legislative contests as well. Okay, we are just about out of time. So, um, Marjorie, I'm, I'm actually going to let it end with you. But just a quick question about here in Bloomington, we got the news yesterday that the mayor's not going to run for re-election, and we already have two Democrats who've thrown in their hats. What do you think about that wide open race? And any thoughts? Well, uh, I suspect that John would agree with me that the Democrat will win, so we can certainly... (laughs) (laughs) The primary will decide that one. The the reason... Finally, a prediction I can actually make with confidence, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Although, you know, our ability to predict isn't nearly as important as our ability to analyze what this means. So uh, whether or not we can predict as politicians or as pollsters really isn't as important as figuring out what it is that people want and whether or not they're getting it. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you all so much for for joining us. It's been a really great conversation. For my co-host, Perry Metz, thank you so much. You're welcome. We hope Bob feels better soon. Yes, we're sending our wishes to Bob. Um, For producers, Kathy Knapp and Nathan Moore and our engineer, Mike Pashkash, I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thank you for listening to Noon Edition today. Have a good weekend. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com.